It was really great talking to Scott. He is a wealth of knowledge, and uh, it's one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is being able to connect with all these arborists, friends that I see here and there at conferences and see around. And uh, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on. I really look forward to doing this again. We kind of ran low on time, so we had to cut it a little shorter than we wanted, but I uh, look forward to talking to you again. want to thank everybody who's taken a minute to share a post, uh, share them with people that do tree work, or you know what, Show, share it with anybody. You never know. Somebody might just like tuning in. Just like to take a minute and thank everybody who's been tuning in and giving us feedback and sharing the posts online and telling their friends at work. It's all noticed. And that's, uh, that's because of the field crew out there getting the word out. So we appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Without further ado, going to take care of business and get right to it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or unsighted copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. Growing up in New York State, surrounded by trees, helped lead him to become an arborist. Being an arborist put him on the path to becoming a standout within the Pacific Northwest. He's been a tree climber, run a spray rig, owned tree companies, and in the 90s, he focused on consulting. In that time, he helped bring science-based tools to tree assessment. He was awarded an honorary lifetime membership to the ISA and is a teacher who brings others along in their careers. On this episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast, we talk to someone who has extensive experience with working in the field, tree assessment, building code, tree diagnosis, building tree houses, zip lines, and is a big tree climber. It is our pleasure to talk to Scott Baker. All right, we're back. This week, we're going to be talking to you know, somebody that I've just known from around the Pacific Northwest as long as I've been doing tree uh, tree work. I've been lucky to be going to seminars and training conferences and competitions, and, you know, he's always there. So, uh, yep, but before we get it too far into it, I'm Andrew. Jamie. Scott Baker. Hey. Hey, Scott. How's it going? I'm doing good. Doing uh, real good. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, it's been a little while. We were just talking before this, and I think the last time we I've saw you was at the conference, we the uh, ISA chapter conference in Eugene. Was that in nineteen? That was nineteen, I think. Yeah, man. It if it, it time is since then, time has been so weird with conferences being on the internet and just everything in between. It's it feels like forever, and it. Yet it's the last time I was around a lot of arborists like that. 
Yeah, it's Likewise. Still, still feels like it was last year. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does, you know. <laughs> um, but it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, I'm, I was thinking back to some – one of the kind of reoccurring things we talk about on this show is uh, the rendezvous back in 08, I think it was. And that was another time yeah. we were hanging out. That was, a, that was another great one. So it's, it's kind of cool. We've, you know, had Dan on and Tom and a lot of, a lot of people that were at that rendezvous. So it's kind of fun to have you on because you're another, another familiar face from a lot of get togethers. Yeah. We slept out in that big tree, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, well, I guess, uh, we'll just kind of get right into it to try to kind of get a feel for who you are for the people that don't know you. Uh, so you grew up in New York. I did. I was born in White Plains, New York, and, uh, my folks lived in, uh, when I was a little kid, I was in Larchmont and Marinac, New York. I went to Marinac High School. My dad would commute into the city on the New Haven uh, uh, line of the railroad. Uh, he was in the publishing industry. So the town I grew up in is very heavily treed. Beautiful tree town. Nice. So that had to have an effect on you becoming an arborist then? I think it did. You know, I, I, uh, I love to climb. I've always been supporting my dad, who's no longer with us. I was always a you know, kid that walked to the edge of the wall. When I got bigger, I'd be running along the edge of the wall. And then when I could climb a tree, I did. And uh, my mom uh, was a, a polio victim in a wheelchair. And I remember you know, sitting on the patio uh, yelling up three points of contact, which gives me a <laughs> chuckle even now because you know, I've taught climbing quite a bit, uh, uh, different kinds of climbing, and that's a standard thing I say to a kid. Is now now take get three good handholds and footholds, then just move one at a time. Yeah, so three points of contact. You know. Oh man. That's... So yeah, then I got I was a lucky kid, and what really I think uh, turned me into a, a an ecology guy, a naturalist, a tree person was I went to the same camp that my dad got to go to in Vermont. It's called Camp Kiwaden, still there, and there was a great teacher there. Uh, a guy named Pat Partridge, who seemed ancient to me at the time. Um, but he ran the nature program. And that was one of my favorite things to do. And so I learned all my trees, my New England trees, uh, by bark and leaf to earn a, uh, we, we, we called it a coup. You know, we, we'd earn these little certificates that showed that you were trying everything. So I got my tree coup every year. Nice. Nice. Well, you know, uh, yeah. So what was the, you know, it's a nature program, but how much emphasis was on the trees within that nature program? Um, you know, the whole, well, I guess I remember quite a bit, uh, because they had a sample, a bark sample and a pressed leaf of every tree. And so we could look at them as uh, specimens like that. And then you go outside, the, the, they had a little special cabin, it's called the Bug House, um, for the nature program. It was right on the edge of a little lagoon off the lake where the camp resided at Lake Dunmore, Vermont, you know, near Middlebury, Vermont, southern Vermont. And uh, I don't know, it just got me. I mean, I remember that, that in those days we were having tremendous gypsy moth 
outbreaks. And I remember one year at camp when pretty much all the leaves on the trees got eaten and then another set of leaves emerged. That always stuck with me, you know, uh, when I started to become more educated, I always remembered that that summer when, when you walked under the trees, it felt like it was raining, but it was, you know, gypsy moth poop, grass. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So there wasn't really a focus on it, but you know, I, trees were everywhere. And yeah. you know, I watched, uh, I watched the tree service, uh, people work on my dad's trees and the neighbor's trees and things like that. And it was fun to watch. Uh, so, well, and like you were saying, you were climbing, what, how old were you, were you saying when you were climbing and your mom was, uh, uh, teaching you the fundamentals of three points of contact? Probably like six. Nice. And then I also remember later on at maybe age 12 or so, my, me and one of my best buddies, a guy named Brian Lucas, my parents had a friend who was a contractor that was helping them fix up their house. His name was Jimmy Pergola, and, and a great Italian guy. And he gave me and he saw us messing around the trees. And he gave us a chunk of rope. Oh, cool. So there was a lot of trees where you couldn't reach the first branch. And also from camp, I knew how to tie a bowline. So we would tie a loop and toss the other end over a branch. And then we both pull, you know, I'd pull and Brian would pull. And then whoever got up there would clamber over the branch and then move the rope up to another branch so that the next guy could sit in the loop and we could do the same thing, both pull. Well, my mom wasn't too happy about this you know, because now we're like 15 feet off the ground <laughs> and climbing the tree where the other trees we climbed, you could, you know, grab the lower branch. It's like climbing a ladder. So, yeah, so that's, kind of you know by 12 i was definitely climbing trees uh for sure well making your own harness and the whole nine. <laughs> oh no we just, well that was i guess that was a harness essentially yeah i mean very yeah, basic really. but you know it was something that supported you that connected to the rope so you could advance yourself in the tree yeah well, i think it looked like a bosun seat too and the community okay. i grew up in was a big big sailing community on long island sound and i also learned to sail at a really young age and learned more about that at camp. And by the time I was about 14, I was crewing on sailboats. But I had definitely probably seen a bosun's chair when Brian and I got the idea of how to get up into that tree. We really wanted to climb, but we couldn't reach. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I've always thought that it's kind of, there's an interesting relationship between sailing and trees in my mind. Because there's a lot of, skills that uh transition between them even though they're totally different activities you know one is on the water where there is no trees and the you know the other is on the land up in a tree where there is no boats yeah well what it is is we're like one of the very few industries that still use rope yeah know? so you could well, talk to a maritime also, person and they know all the knots you're gonna know you know probably more yeah they, they, they might yeah yeah well also i'll say this uh, you know, we're also uh, only two professions where you can get motion sickness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's something to that. You read the wind, uh, obviously, uh, when you're sailing, but there's a lot of times where you read the wind when you're doing tree work also. And I think I was probably 24 when I started sailing, you know, and so it, I was already doing tree work. 
but you start learning to read the wind by the feel of it on the back of your neck or, you know, just like watching the ripples on the water. And I started doing that when I was in the tree. Also, I just feel where the wind, I was always kind of aware where the wind was hitting me, where, whether I'm throwing a branch down or not, or I'd watch the trees, you know, the wind pass through other trees to kind of figure out where it was going and what it was doing. And I remember that was one of those times where I was like, wait a second, this is kind of an interesting connection. And then you get into uh, stuff like the GRCS is basically just a sailing winch that you strap to the side of a tree and, you know, it's, uh, it's an odd connection. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, there's a lot of connections there. I think, um, you know, our commonality, it's, uh, uh, you know, sailboats are a really interesting system. Really a trees are as well. Yeah. And for a long time trying to keep people from, uh, doing tree work that doesn't make any sense. I've used the analogy, which is a bit of a stretch. I say to people, you're going on a sailboat. If they say yes, I say, have you ever heard the captain say the wind's coming up? Let's cut a hole in the sail. <laughs> and then I say, look, these are two different things. You know, the sailboat is a system, but no, when the sailboat is overwhelmed, the captain says, let's shorten the sail or put a smaller sail up. Yeah. And, yeah, and that is the thing about, you know, if you poke holes in the tree, it doesn't really work to make the tree more stable. But if you shorten the sail, shorten the sail, or just make it smaller, that works really well. And frankly, I have a lot of experience sailing in all kinds of conditions and all kinds of boats. And uh, you don't have to take away much sail in a big wind before you realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm way better off now. I've got control and the system is working well. So, uh, you know, I, 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 it's, again, you know, the, the, the sailboat is like an engineered system, and so is a tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're really different, yeah. but they're kind of the same, you know. There, there's, a, there's some kind of a crossover there that people, I can explain why you shouldn't have somebody poke holes in your tree uh, to try to make it less likely to blow over or break. Yeah, I think that's a... You said the analogy is a bit of a stretch. I think it's a good one, and I'll probably use it, you know, when talking about crown reductions or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. There you go. Like go it. ahead. Go yeah. right Go right at it, you know. Well, and it, it goes back to leverage, right? If you're – you shorten the sail, you're shortening the leverage, you know, and it's the same with a, uh, a branch when I'm doing weight reduction. You know, I'm not – you don't want to, like, clean out the sprouts that are close to the trunk. That's – doesn't have any effect on the weight reduction. You want to get the leverage out of the tip. Yeah. And really, we shouldn't really say weight reduction. I mean, my friend John Ball has pretty well shown that the weight in trees is in the significant wood. And yeah. so when you are doing uh, end weight work, what you really are doing is shortening lever arms. Okay. Yeah. And now we know you don't want to make the tree too stiff. And we know that you don't have to take too much off before you're going to leave a branch that's much less likely to be overwhelmed. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's, that's one of those things that, uh, you can't overstate. I mean, and it, it goes into lines tailing and all these poor practices that just get to understand what you're doing, understand the leverage, you know, make that educated decision. So, what was your first tree job? Like how, what was your introduction to the profession? Okay, I'm, I'm going to do it in two steps. Perfect. So I was always a pretty handy kid. 
I like doing stuff. My dad was fairly handy. He had like a little shop in the basement. And he taught my brother and I how to pound nails and how to use a handsaw, things like that. We had some neighbors. They had a little tree in their backyard, and they wanted to cut it down. I was getting old enough, you know, to want to have some pocket change. Uh, the one job that I had was crash boat boy for the winter sailing fleet, a fleet of dinghies. They call them frostbite sailors. So that was pretty good money on the weekends. We we drove a little aluminum motorboat. So we towed out the committee boat, and then we set the course, and then we rescued the sailors when they dumped on the downwind lake. But that's another story. Anyhow, I realized you know money was good. So the neighbors, uh, they said, you know, they they somehow it came up, and somehow I ended up cutting down this little tree for them. So quite a bit of time passed then, and I went to college in uh, Olympia, Washington. I, that was my, my way I came to the West Coast is in 1971. I didn't go to camp. I went to a National Outdoor Leadership School uh, course in the North Cascades. North Cascades Mountain Guide Expedition for a month. Uh, and when I came back from that, the next, you know, I graduated high school. I went to Evergreen. I came back home for the summer when I got a job at Eastern Mountain Sports. Uh, you know, inside selling gear. Well, it was a good deal. I got some good deals, but it was a brutally unpleasant job in many ways. So the next summer, by then, I had a cadre of climbing friends at Evergreen in Olympia, and one of them, Jack Lewis, his cousin John, John L. Sullivan, had a tree service. In the phone book, the picture in the phone book ad was a cartoon of John L., who actually was a real boxer, a professional boxer, or semi-pro boxer. And uh, the picture was John L. knocking the top out of a tree. So when I went home that summer, I looked in the paper, and I saw an ad for a tree climber. So I answered the ad, and I got hired by a guy named Bruce Baumblatt. And Bruce was a, a recent graduate of business school, but as a kid, he had dragged brush for tree services. And while in business school, he's like, this is the business I'm going into. He had good family connections. And by the time he hired me, he had about 400 spray customers. And he had a little tree service. He drove a gold El Camino. <laughs> and, uh, and, and when I first started working for him, there was no chipper. We were still cutting down brush in the back of the truck. But right after I got to work for him, he bought a chipper. You know, everybody was teasing him, and uh, it was an old, you know, duck and chuck chipper. So, you know, that first summer, if there was no climbing to do, uh, you know, I would be on the spray crew. And so that was my first real job in what we now refer to as the tree care industry. Uh, And I could go on about, oh, I had some adventures there, you know. I learned about pin oaks. Never start pruning the pin oak from the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just end up standing on a load of brush. You can't move. Uh, and then I learned how, you know, how to put my spur through my boot and my big toe. I still have a triangular scar. Ooh. And, uh, and one day I remember a takedown over a pool. Takedown, that was what we called a removal. So a takedown over a pool and a hot day. And Bruce got really frustrated with me. He's like, I'm going to do that. So he goes up there and he's trying to finish the tree. He sends the saw down to be refueled. 
and I guess I didn't put the oil cap on tight, or maybe the uh, gas cap, or whatever. So he got doused in gas, and uh, but he he still he still employed me. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, that really takes me back. Bruce Tree Service driving that thousand gallon spray truck it was like driving a sponge. <laughs> so I'm stuck on the gold El Camino. He just drove that as his personal rig, or were you uh, reloading brush in there? No, that's what he used to go do his bid. Okay, yeah. Oh, nice. That's how he impressed Uh, the clients. I have to tell tell another story about Bruce. Yeah, yeah. So with that job, you know, I was this college kid, and I'm still pretty skinny. Actually, I've got a beer gut now, but I'm skinny. And so, you know, I was skinny. Where did we meet Bruce at, at midday to see what, you know, there was a, like a, often there was a job in the morning or, you know, it was more than one job a day. We met him at a bar. Okay. <laughs> all the tree men, that's what they call them. All the tree men went to that bar. And so at the bar, you could get a 25 cent schooner of beer and you could get like a, you know, like a sandwich which was basically a slab of Italian uh, roll with butter and meat. And, you know, I always had my book and my lunch. So I'd be sitting out in the truck. But I did go in there, and I was stunned to see that the, some of the guys that I'd be working with knocking back to 25 cent scooters at lunch. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> so, you know, it was very interesting. But Bruce, the story that they told us about Bruce to, to get him to blush was that when he first started out, you know, he got a spray rig. And because of his net family's network, he got some customers. And then he went and asked the other guys, what do I do? And they said, well, Bruce, you got to spray oil. And Bruce did. He sprayed motor oil. And he knocked the leaves off, you know, some like estate quality properties in large Mamba Maranek, you know, with the first tank of mix that he had. (laughs) (laughs) True story. (laughs) So, you know, by the time I was there running the rig, we were on to the serious chemicals. and I, I always wonder when it's going to hit me. Oh, but, yeah. you know, we were spraying malathion. And me, the college kid, I was reading Rachel Carson, you know. And in the neighborhood, you'd see, like, red-winged blackbirds just vanished. They were all just dead in, in the gutter because oh. they ate inchworms, and the inchworms were full of malathion. And, oh. uh, and we filled up the spray rig, you know, with a fire hose from a hydrant where he had a permit. There's a little hook on the top of the rig right next to the hatch where you filled it. And you, you, you know, get the hose going and then you'd slice open a bag of malathion and dump it in there. And it would just puff up in a cloud yeah. all over it, you know, everything, all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, he had, he had whole neighborhoods that we would spray. We left puddle. Wow. Oh Think yeah. Totally a different time. I, you know, totally. that, that's one of the part of the industries I have very little experience in. I've never run a spray rig. Matter of fact, when I went and worked at the city, uh, one of the things I had to do was get uh, a pesticide applicator's license. And it was, I was like, I'm the only reason I did it is because uh, talking to Scott, he's like, hey, it's just a requirement for the job. You're never going to have to use it. And I was like, hey, man, I'm not going to do it. Like, if you need me to check this box, I'll check the box. But I have no interest in playing with chemicals because I don't know much about them. But everything I've heard is just, 
you know, to stay away. <laughs> so then to, to hear where the origins of the industry of just dumping the bags in and the clouds coming up, you know, maybe as a little paradigm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what, what oh, was the yeah. chemical well, you said? Malathion. Is that still in use, and is it just like an insecticide? Uh, sadly, it is. I believe it's probably still in use somewhere. You know, when we got smart enough to ban chemicals here in the U.S., we just shipped them somewhere else. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and still, we, you know, we're still trying to wean ourselves from that uh, chemical era. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people, and I, I, at the risk of offending uh, friends that might listen to these, this podcast, you know, all of, in my opinion, all of the big tree care companies in North America, probably Great Britain as well, uh, other places, they really made their fortunes and got big selling what uh, what sometimes are euphemistically termed by the salesman as liquids. Hmm. So they made their money post-war, particularly, uh, you know, mo- modern living through chemicals. Yeah. And you don't have to have a single hole and a single leaf on your property. And, uh, you know, Bruce had customers who were getting four applications a year, probably a dormant oil, once he learned that it wasn't motor oil you put in there. <laughs> and then, you know, up to three other applications. And, you know, sprayed, we sprayed everything. The spray rig, that was a bean spray rig with 1,000 pounds pressure. So it easily hit 100 feet. And if you uh, were too close to a tree and you had the trigger on and you swept across the bark, it'd blow the bark right off an oak tree, like wow. a, like a wow. lightning strike. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, you had you were supposed to knock on a door and get everybody to close the windows in the house. And that, I remembered that as a kid. You know, they're coming to spray the trees. You know, go around the house, close all the windows, turn the attic fan off, wow. and uh, away they went. So you know, the thing it, about it, it is, is though. The, the thing about it is, is this shows just, you know, how, how important it is to learn how to take the time to educate yourself and help move the industry forward, you know, cause that was just common practice. That was just what everybody did back in the day. It was, you know, yo, just knock on the neighbors, tell them to close their doors or their windows, you know, uh, and spray away yeah. and, and spray away. But it, it's, it's p- people taking time to educate themselves on on their craft, which is, you know, what has got us to the point where we understand, Hey, maybe that's not the best way to always do it. You know? Yeah. Or if you're, if you're going, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say don't use any chemicals. Remember I said manipulate. Yeah. Uh, so actually tree solutions, uh, you know, we're willing to do some systemic treatments. Yep. Um, but we're very reticent to do it. In fact, this stuns people that, there are always people trying to help you make more money in your business. And you tell them you do something like this and you tell them you don't market it. They don't get it. <laughs> and in fact, you know, a lot of times when people call and they want to treat a tree, uh, we basically talk them out of it. You know, it's like a good example would be the bronze birch borer, which is going to, you know, at the moment it looks like it's eradicating the white bark birches from Western Washington. Yeah. We're dealing um, with it know. here too. Yeah, and so, you know, it turns out if you water the heck out of a tree like that, oh, by the way, they're a tree that are generally riparian and need a lot of water, then the borer doesn't really, you know, might might jump in there and might get them a little bit, but you can preserve your tree to some degree depending on where it's growing. Yeah. But if you treat it, 
you're turning the whole tree toxic. And those trees are full of pollen and seeds that are used by a lot of other critters. Yeah. So turns out yeah. once you tell people that, they're not so not so anxious to treat their tree. Some people want to. And um, you know, that's the way of it. So Yeah. That that's what I've found as well is if if a birch is in really wet soil and it, especially also if it's in the shade of other trees. You know, if it's yes. if it doesn't get that hot afternoon sun, if it's, you know, you got a big bunch of firs and a really wet spot, put a birch there and you know, you might have a little more luck with it. You're right, but the the things that drive me nuts, you know, I can't stop looking at trees, let's face it. On 67, I never opened the sunroof of my car. It wouldn't last a week. Uh, You know, I'd be out looking at a tree and, you know, run a stop sign, get T-bone. But, but, you know, I see birches that have been planted recently within the last, say, five years when when everybody should know, you know, in landscape plantings. And the younger birches just get taken out by those spores. They don't, they don't have a chance. Yeah. So older trees, you know, if you can pour water on them, they might survive. And I've got a lot of trees I'm watching that, you know, somebody, somebody like you guys come along and taking out the dead. And if the tree is watered, it seems to be, uh, you know, producing some new growth and looks okay. But if not, and it's a sort of a slow demise, a few years, and then there's more and more dead. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, the chemical, you know, this is, to me, this is, this is the ecology thing, the ecosystem thing. Uh, there's so many variables. If you do something, there's going to be a, an effect of some kind. And people, you know, we've sort of trained people to, you know, to say that this ha- that this is what you to do when in fact if you were able to educate them a little more and get them thinking they'd say well clearly this is not what i want to do so that's kind of weird to have a business where uh, my colleagues in the tree solutions group a couple of them do the treatment but we don't market it and so it's only in special occasions that i think it's worth it and also knowing about the downstream effects like as far as i know if you juice up a tree with uh, fungicide for ophistoma for Dutch elm disease, there's no off-target impact, zero. But with other uh, trees that you systemically treat, there may be pretty significant off-target impacts, some of which have never been really studied, so you're just guessing. Um, but, you know, I have friends that are birders, including a couple of arborists, and they're appalled that we would turn a birch tree into a toxic uh, organism. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, so that's a good point. You know, I it's something I'm going to start thinking about more. I down here, you know, like I was saying, we're having a lot of bronze birch borer. They're just running through all the birches. Um, and I usually tell people just to, you know, if I go to a job, someone asks for a bid on it or what's going on with it, I just tell them to remove it most of the time. Uh, you know, unless it's a really sentimental thing for them or if there's a reason they, other than, you know, if there's a reason they want to keep it, keep it, you know. But uh, I always try to sell the removal. But I've a lot yeah, of times I, I've mentioned, yeah, I've a lot of times I've mentioned, hey, there are these other products out there. I don't really deal with that stuff. But if you do some research, I'm sure you could, you know, 
but I'm I might even stop. Well, I'll probably start saying that, but adding the but just so you know, it's going to make a lot of the tree toxic for all the other critters that depend on it. What we've been doing True. is pruning out the dead. Obviously, it depends on how far along it is, you know. But pruning yeah. out the dead and then telling them, you know, organic mulch rings and lots of water. And then by us removing that dead, this will help you monitor future health. Like, yeah, you'll be able to that see is a great how answer, this is doing. Yeah. yeah, really good, really good, sensible response. Um, I, because that's the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's happening so much around here right now. It's kind of it it's just a little crazy. As a matter of fact, the last time a couple weeks ago, me and Jamie worked on a job together, and that's what it was. It was those uh, oh yeah, those birches in the next to the guy's driveway and they're just dying back big, big time. And, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, Hey man, we'd be happy to remove these. Usually we don't sell removals. We try to save trees, but this is a bit of a different situation, but he just wanted them. I think there's a little bit of a screen thing going on or, you know, he wanted them for the landscape. And so I was kind of like, well, while they're dying out, then plant something else in it, you know, in between or, Whatnot, oh, right? I was just going to say that. You guys are on my wavelength. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's so uncommon to see people. Well, when people do try to interplant is the way I put it, or plant in advance of the removal or plant because you know that the tree that uh, the arborist is working on is basically going to be re- removed to death by a thousand cuts over maybe five years or even more longer. And people don't think about the fact that you can just, you definitely can get a new tree going and a good arborist can then slowly remove the tree that's not going to make it. And then you have a tree. Yeah. It will. It makes so much sense because you're simulating the forest, right? Cause if, exactly. if a tree's dying out, there's other trees that are taking off and it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt doing the removal. If there's another tree, I've definitely run into situations where I've kind of cursing myself because now there's another tree there in, in the way of the removal. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that's just part of the game. So you got to do what you got to do. But the other thing that I've, I've been thinking about with that, the more I understand about the mycelium network and the relationship with roots and how that works, if you get let a tree get established and let the roots get into the ground... Then when you remove that other tree, if the if the roots have tapped into the mycelium network and connected to those other roots, it'll actually start transferring some of the nutrients. I'm pretty sure from the the tree you remove to the tr- tree that's replacing it and help it take off once you remove those trees. I believe, you know, I I'm not an expert on right. it, but I think there's something to it. Well, we'll we'll have an opportunity to ask. Suzanne Samard when when the conference comes off because oh, she's yeah. going to be the keynote speaker. So I think you're right. Even if you know at the at the basic level, the you know the, the composting of the original tree underground is basically the the dead parts of the tree turned to soil, and that stored energy is released for your new tree. You know you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to. In a lot of places where grinding the stump makes sense. And when you grind the stump, are you getting the whole thing? Yeah. Heck no. No, no, no. You know, there's all that root network that's below ground and is going to decay and break down, and it's energy. And in fact, I have quite a few situations where I've found uh, fine tree roots in fairly, you know, sketchy soils 
And where are they? They're essentially in the organic matter that used to be a root of a large tree. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. It's like whoa. It is. Uh, in fact, today, you know, I'll just you know, today uh, at the end of the, the field part of the exam for the track course, there was a nice little fir stump uh, that was still alive. And we talked about it in class, and I said, hey, you guys, before we go back in, you know, and, and take that darn 100-question test, check this out. And we had a little good little discussion about it. It's like very interesting. At Tree Biomechanics Week, uh, all the folks were looking at stuff, and they were trying to figure out whether some of these methods to look for roots underground worked. So they did the, the analysis, and then they blew the, you know, took a pneumatic tool and blew all the soil away. And they were shocked to find a couple of trees that were completely invisible above ground, and the root system was still thriving, connected to nearby trees. Wow. And so this stunned, they they were not, you know, nobody was expecting this. And I, I can't cite a reference, but I understand that some researchers have found that, particularly in subtropical, tropical regions, I mean, think about it, there's so many species. They, they have found uh, interspecies root grafts, which I would never have expected. Uh-huh. I mean, up where, I, where I've always worked, you know, back east or all over North American temperate climates, you know, I would expect the same species to generate a root graft like elm or dug fir. But, you know, we just haven't looked. We haven't looked. We don't know what's down there. Yeah. People like Suzanne Smart are blowing the barn doors open. I'll tell you what. I I really want to have her on the podcast. She because this is I think one of the the you know next frontiers for our industry. We you know we've worked so much on the what we can see and what we can observe and how that works. And there's I mean half the organism is underground and doing its thing under there. It, you know it's amazing the the way trees will uh, favor their own offspring when transferring resources and then they'll favor their own species after that and then favor other species. So there's like a tier system. I don't know if you call it them making decisions or if it's just how the genetics connect to each other easier. If the, you know, the closer they are or exactly why it's doing it, but it is absolutely fascinating to me. It totally is. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm still a shy go acolyte. So I, I'm always questioning when we anthropomorphize trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we, we ascribe human behaviors or feelings to them, um, you know, I, I think that that's a little sketchy. It, it but, is sketchy, but what know, I will say, uh, what I will say though is it it's a great tool for communicating to people that aren't in the tree world. You know, when you're talking to somebody about the tree in their backyard, it, there's a fine line because I always want them to relate to the tree and care about it as if it's a creature that, you know, in, in the way they understand. So there's an interesting uh, dichotomy and mix to the way that to kind of how to handle that interaction. I like that. I'm going to take that to heart, um, you know, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. So in my, in Janice's yard, Janice is my, my wife, my partner, we have a dug fur in the yard and that tree is always kind of I've been watching it for, you know, since 1997 and it's, you know, it's a really tough spot, uh, but it always produces a heavy cone crop. 
And I have potted up, I don't know how many Douglas firs in our yard. And I'm always like, how is it that those are doing so well? And so I think I have a hub tree, you know, a mother oh, yeah. tree or a father tree, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think, you know, it, it stands to reason that with the discoveries that have been made, we haven't even scratched the surface. You know, in yards, this kind of things can happen in neighborhoods or urban yeah. settings. Uh, and, you know, I always you know Andrew has definitely heard me say this. I consider most of the trees that Arbus looks look at as being uh, potted plants in some way or another. They're contained by human infrastructure. Yeah. So and as a consulting arborist or even any kind of arborist, you want to learn about that and, and start to look for it. And as soon as you start digging or poking around or looking at these trees, you're like, whoa, that house foundation is below the rhizosphere. There ain't going to be no roots below the house. Where are the roots? And in my uh, work, asking that question, where are the roots? Are there any roots? When you're in a planning team uh, regarding development, things like that, if you're lucky enough to be there at the early stages and you go look for roots, it changes the whole game. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. whoa, there were no roots. Whoa, there's a root I never expected. And that's all about the below ground uh, habitat of trees, you know, the, the rhizosphere. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm actually going to run by a project that I've been thinking about uh, that I'm working on right now. It's a, uh, a dug fir. It's probably about five feet away from the house. It's not a giant fir, but it's a pretty good sized one. And under the house, there's a root. They're, they're selling the house, buying the house. And so the, the buyer contacted me because on the inspection, they found a pretty good size fir root coming under the foundation and then just kind of moving around under the house and then going down into the ground in a couple spots. And so they wanted to know if they could remove the root or if they, uh, you know, basically if the root was going to destroy their foundation or what was going on, you know, and it was real interesting because the, the tree is probably about three feet above where it goes under the foundation. Cause there's a hill there and there's a, a retaining wow. wall. So it went down under this retaining wall and under this sidewalk or this walkway and then came out, uh, under the house there. And it's Surfaced a pretty, under the house. what's that? Surfaced under the house. Surfaced yeah. under the house, and it's a pretty good sized root too, you know. And so, it, it's you know, and it's a good big enough fur, so I don't want to remove it if I don't have to. So I was, exactly. I was thinking that if I go under the house and like over a few years remove parts of the root, you know, like basically condense the root, uh, retrench the root over a few years to allow the tree to have time to replace that root on other parts of the root system before we remove it. I don't know. That's kind of the, the tack that I was thinking about taking, but what do you think about that? The first thing, first thing to ask is, is the root causing any problem? Because you know, uh, Eugene is not Seattle, no glaciers. Uh, you know, in Seattle, that would be very unlikely. Although I have seen an empress tree root size of my thigh under a house. And it was causing problems, not with the foundation, but with the driveway slab. Yeah. And uh, I was yeah. super surprised. It was underneath a plastic uh, uh, vapor barrier. And so there was, there was moisture there. 
And clearly there was a way for the tree root to get under there where it found a good environment. So in Eugene, you know, if the soils are a good loamy soil and there's no displacement of the foundation, why do anything to the root? But I think your idea is really sound. Uh, basically slow, slowly subordinating that root, especially formative pruning underground. Yeah. So subordinating yeah. the root, just the way, that's the way I, uh, when I see, you know, girdling roots are really tricky, but if they're, if you think you can do it, then you want to be cautious. You, you know, figure out how much root there is, and then you start working your way down the dendritic pattern, and you subordinate, take off a third, yeah. come back in a year yeah. or two, take off the other third, come back, take off the final bit, and then you take your chisel or whatever tool you can get and pop it off the trunk. And yeah. that would be a really substantial girdling root. You're worried, wow, if I cut that off, that's a big input for the tree. But that's fascinating, man. Document it. It's like, because this is something that, you know, who's going to study that? And I think that uh, the arborist observation, the, the observations that arborists make you know, if we could find a way, and we have the methods now with the, with the world the way it is, to, uh, you know, share this, share what you found, and you'll probably find somebody else with something similar. Mm-hmm. So yeah. my own house in Seattle, we had a, a vegetable pendula, big one, you know, maybe 18 inches of the foot. And my, as we started to own, as we bought the property, rented it, and then we bought it. And we've turned the whole place into a garden now. And we had a friend, permaculture guy, and he's like, you got to get rid of that birch. And about that time, I was going under the house and going, man, I got to fix this house. Tore out the furnace, tore out all the crappy insulation. And I'm like, what is this? And there were birch roots under there. Well, they're incredibly invasive. And there was the same thing. There was moisture under there. So I turned that tree into a snag. And it was astounding. So over eight years the snag supported a bunch of birds, but then finally I cut it down and uh, actually buried all the rotten parts in garden beds, Google culture. But I was astounded uh, during COVID as I built more garden beds to find roots of that tree that really took some serious effort to cut through and take them away. So they were still down there as this big, uh, basically a fertilizer chunk is the way I look at it. Um, but I did have a problem. I, I, but I didn't have any problem with the house foundation. They had gone somehow gotten under it and you know, the tree was far away. It takes a pretty, uh, specific situation to have a tree root in a situation where it will alter a house foundation, a lot of variables, but you know, modern houses, they're not going to be any tree roots under them in general. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was this was a bit of an interesting situation. It seemed crazy that it would go so far down and under so much infrastructure to get to under the house to start with. It was just a, a little bit of an interesting situation. So, yeah, thank, thank, thank you for uh, kind of answering my personal question. <laughs> um, I, you know, I like you guys. I mean, you know, you know, Andrew, you're like a second generation arborist in a way. Yeah. You've been, your whole life yeah. you've been hanging around people who are, who are doing tree work. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and we don't know a lot of stuff. So I'll tell you a quick story about a tree root, a giant sequoia, sequoia dendron giganium, at the Bittman Mansion in Seattle. You can find that on the internet. Uh, 
young couple bought the house, famous house, built by an engineer, overbuilt to the max. When they bought the house, they agreed to preserve the tree collection, uh, probably more than a double lot in that neighborhood. Some very unusual trees and big ones. So the sequoia was uh, 57 inches at uh, standard height. It was line pruned along the street. Uh, it was really, they, they did not want to cut it down, but you know, you needed to rope up to go up the stairway to the house. And they had some problems in the basement room. Very complicated house with two partially below grade garages, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, you know, I've worked with this particular contractor, you know, high-end specialty contractor, and they basically do what I tell them, and they're curious. So I'm like, I don't know what the hell it's doing. You know, could this be a root down here, way below grade? And so we pop the floor open, and sure enough, there's these big sequoia roots down there. So then I'm poking around a little more, and on the opposite side of the house, beyond these two below-grade garages, there on the surface in the backyard is a root. And I'm looking at that thing, and I'm like, there's no other tree that that could be. That's a sequoia root. So it was like, wow. And the tree by this point, you know, was so big and maybe eight, I'm going to say eight feet or less from the house. And, you know, the only thing I could say was, you know, I think you need to bite the bullet. And this tree has outlived its uh, time in this little tiny pot. And the house, by the way, was a work of art. So I was really into the fact that these people were not tearing this house down, but they were preserving it. And they did put a lot of energy into preserving the rest of the garden and the other trees. But they had actually two, at least two trees that, you know, the fact is that my name is Scott Baker, but I'm sometimes Scott Baker, the tree undertaker. Although I love trees, I'm a practical consultant. And so that's the situation you're in with this root under the house. It's like, okay, what are we going to do here? What can you do? Yeah, that's the balance we, uh, that's the balance all of us arborists are constantly figuring out is at what point, you know, in an urban setting, you know, every tree has a time, uh, a clock ticking on it, you know, and we, you know, I, if the tree is in a healthy spot, I try to extend that clock as far out as I possibly can. And hopefully I pass the clock on to another arborist long after I retire and that tree's there for a long time. But, you know, no tree is going to uh, reach the same heights in an urban setting in someone's backyard that it's going to reach just in nature by itself without people around. That's just, you know, the way it is. Uh, there's so many more needs that we got. So that's a that's always a really interesting balance. I think it is. I think, you know, that's why I like arboriculture. It's, uh, you know, when I look at people's property, I have to be careful. Um, but I, I really, you know, I don't think anybody owns a tree, you know, really, mm-hmm. especially in our urban settings. I mean, how long are they going to be there? And I looked at the, after the class yesterday, after talking for eight hours, I actually went and looked at some trees, uh, a legal matter, like five minutes from the place in Spanaway that we were using for the class. And, you know, one of the trees there looked to me like to be a 250 year old fir. And, you know, uh, it's just really interesting when you see these things and try to explain to people what they've got. This is a young couple, and then basically two young couples that are in a bit of a feud at the moment. Um, and I said to them, I said, you know, 
you know, you guys own this property right now, but do you really own that tree? I mean, that tree has been there, and they like both parties kind of like the trees, you know. But I'm like, wow, you know, really, I know that the world we live in is the world we live in, but really, you know, that tree is going to be there. It's been there before the house was built, before the first house was built, and before it was remodeled. And you guys are going to be long gone, or you could be long gone. That tree will still be there. Do you really own that tree? And, you know, that's kind of a bold thing for a consultant like me to say, but they were receptive. Mm-hmm. They got where I was coming from. And, you know, I, I agree with you that, you know, we know this from observational science that we're not going to get the longevity in cities unless you have that perfect spot. Um, but I would challenge everybody to say, let's plan to build those perfect spots into our urban environment. I've, I've been saying for years, uh, you know, somebody who gets involved in uh, attempts to, so as they say, retain or preserve a tree. And I often have said, in fact, in some very public venues, uh, we are retaining this tree, but what are we really retaining? I just ask the question. And what we're really retaining is a volume of soil, a place for the tree that will replace the one we're talking about. And yeah. that kind of thinking, yeah. that is, to me, that is, if we can get a lot of humans thinking that way, we're going to be way better off as the planet continues to rotate and move forward. Like, hey, nothing is permanent. Yeah, that's something we think about a lot at Urban Forestry because, you know, so much of it is you're thinking long-term and replacing the trees and it's about saving you know, creating good planting sites because even if a tree gets hit by a car or removed for whatever reason, you want to make sure you have a good site to plant that tree. But what, you know, it kind of goes also to the right tree, right spot, you know, which is one of those things that you hear all the time within our industry because it's, uh, you know, because there's a lot of wisdom to it. But kind of what I'm hearing from you is taking that to the next level of create the right spot for the right tree. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so so I'll tell a quick story. At the University of Washington, they're building a lot of housing. It's quite a few years ago now. They decided to build Elm Hall. Well, I don't know when they decided to name it Elm Hall, but they had a whole block with a bunch of really old houses and an old apartment building. And in the gravel parking lot next to the parking building was a really nice elm tree. And... Uh, there's quite a bit of controversy over the development. Um, and long story short, we, the university decided to preserve one quarter of their building site in order to preserve the street. So we did things like remove the gravel layer. Very interesting. Too, too much of a distraction for, to keep going with. So, uh, and I, I, when I say I, a lot of times I'm talking about the Royal I, Tree Solutions Inc., because I don't work alone. I work with a group. And so we managed to get the landscape architects to change their plans. We brought in dirt. We brought in sandy loam, unprocessed uh, for any soil they needed on the site. We didn't put anything on that site but wood chips in terms of amendments. I made them keep 12 feet from the tree, clear of any planting. The tree... The building is brilliant. The tree, unbelievably, came back to life, thriving, unreal. However, it's an elm. 
So part of the plan was to treat the elm tree. And even when the tree was being treated, and this is something we should all know, is like, hey, you know, those beetles will come in, and if the chemical is not there, they'll get gone. So with with uh, Sarah Shores, the UW arborist, watching the tree, she's like, look at that, Scott, looks like BED. Took it to the lab, yes. They went up there, pruned it out. And that's a, that was a standard treatment as I was growing up for elm. You're trying to keep it, you'd go up and prune out the infected area and trace the fungal infection with a saw. So we tried that, and it seemed to have worked. Then I think what happened was there was a FUBA in the treatment timing. And these days, I don't trust the three-year uh, timing. I'll say you should treat it sooner. Anyhow, the tree flagged again, and within like three weeks, it was toast. So it was removed literally in one day with some logs taken, but with a 21-inch, you know, grapple chipper in use as well. Um, but I felt really sad about it. But on the other hand, I'm like, look at that soil volume. Mm-hmm. And I know that the university will plant, they could plant even two large stature trees in there. And they have this great soil volume. But it was really an interesting, you know, that tree was really potted up when the building, you know, there were no roots under that apartment building. When they built the new infrastructure and uh, paths and things around the tree, I had them build discontinuous walls because they were going to have landscape beds a level up. And I'm like, you need to let this tree get loose. And within one year, the tree had put roots under the, uh, you know, the parts of the walls that didn't contact the ground up into the new landscape bed. Despite all that effort, the tree, we lost the tree. But it's a good lesson because was it worth it to preserve that tree? I think it totally was uh, because they don't have any built there. They're not going to put a convenience store in there or build a pavilion. They're going to keep that as a landscape bed. And, you know, they may even plant one of the uh, cultivar elms that are de-resistant, although I would not recommend that. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting story. It's like, whoa. Yeah, that's a good way to think yeah. about it. Yeah. Saving the planting space <laughs> and encouraging them to get another tree in there because then, you know, we are talking about the roots. If you get a tree in there before the roots uh, rot out, you know, you, you might be able to kind of, kind of uh, boost that next tree with the root system of the old tree. As it breaks down, you're, it's kind of a little extra natural fertilizer. It totally, I, you know, I'm so all over that. And I was that, talking to Casey Clapp, and I, I told him about your podcast. And oh. so, you know, Casey's got his crazy podcast. Yeah, I listened to it. And he just it. had his first interview guest. So your whole podcast is based on, you know, chatting. And yeah. his podcast is just breaking into that. Yeah, I absolutely um, love his podcast. He he uh, shares so much great information on those trees and really goes in depth. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It really is. I've listened to half a dozen of them, yeah. And it's it's kind of funny because one of the requests we've had is people have asked us to do specific trees. And it's it's something we love to do. So we just kind of started doing what he's doing also. Um, But it's kind of funny because it's like, hey, guys, if if that's what you want, there is a great podcast out there doing just that. Before you get going, 
and we'll we'll have to do another episode because I got a thousand questions I could ask you. But before we get going and we wrap up this episode, uh, I I want to know about some of your big tree climbing. I've I've heard that you've worked with Sillet. You've climbed some big trees. You got any stories on that that you want to share real quick before you, you get going? I do. So really where I got my, I, I've always looked for big trees to climb, even back east. And I could go on with stories from my youth. But, uh, you know, when I started, uh, I got, I was giving a talk in Eugene, Andrew, at one of the conferences. You were like a teenager or less. And, was that 94? Uh, Probably, yes, probably, yes. So there was a guy in the back of my outdoor uh, session at the field day, my favorite place to give a talk, the field day. If I can give a talk outside, and I, you know, the next time we do this, we should Zoom, and I'll be outside in my backyard in my wood pile. Cool. That's where I've been giving a lot of talks. But I, there was a guy there, had a funny hat on, looked like a character, listening very carefully after the conference, after the talk was done, he came up and buttonholed me. That was Michael Garnier, the treehouse guy. And so in about five minutes, we were firm, firmly attached. And pretty soon we were down in uh, Southern Oregon uh, near Tequilma, where he lives, where the out and about tree resort is near Oregon Caves, where you and I hung out in the hammock with your mom. And that's another story. But, uh, but yeah, so I got I got I got asked to come down, and we started the World Treehouse Conference. Uh, first, it was just called the Treehouse Conference, THC. Uh, and, and, the World, and the World Treehouse Conference. And if you look at the T-shirts, you'll you'll love them. But um, but anyhow, Michael and I went uh, went down, and uh, we put in a proposal for a canopy walkway. Uh, and then I saw his property, and I was immediately drawn to climbing some of the trees down there. So I, this would have, we just canceled the conference, but it would have been my 25th year giving talks at the World Treehouse Conference. And that was my big tree climbing vacation. So I started to really get into the techniques and, and get comfortable with climbing these really large trees where the first branch was like way out of reach. So, and then as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I'm really interested in technology tools. So, uh, and I knew about Sillet, and I actually was the person who got him to come and start to give a few talks to Arborist. He talked at our PNW conference. He talked at the International. And I know several famous canopy people, so I'll leave it at that for now. Anyhow, uh, in 2007, uh, Philip Van Wassner and I uh, got approached by Steve and his crew to start to come down and use some of our technology tools, particularly the acoustic and impedance tomography gear from Picas, and to work on a tree called the Bull Creek Giant. So we went down for a week in 2007, I believe it was. Uh, and uh, in fact, I know it was because we celebrated the, uh, the presidential victory by Obama at the Lost Coast Brewery with the whole crew. But for a week, we hiked into this tree and measured and played and did science in it. The first branch is 165 feet off the ground. The German scientist Lothar Guck, the inventor or developer of the acoustic tomograph, he had never climbed a tree since he was a kid. His first climb was to 165 feet to a portal edge, and his climbing partner on a rope right next to him was Steve. 
and Jim Campbell Spickler was assisting the uh, National Geographic photographer Nick Nichols in the tree right adjacent. That's where I met uh, Jim. And so, you know, after climbing that tree, I was a member of a very small group, uh, people who've been over 100 meters in a tree. And before I got there, Dan, who you know well, had slept in a tree right down the block, so to speak, <laughs> Hyperion, you know, the biggest tree we knew about at the time. So, you know, I uh, since then, uh, climbing large trees has kind of been a hobby. And, you know, uh, uh, James Luce and I, that was, that was one of the ways we got to know each other, uh, climbing big trees. And uh, uh, Paul Stamets is my friend, the mushroom guy, and he knew about my interest in that. And so I began to climb trees to take samples from agaricon mushrooms uh, with him. And some of those trees were gargantuan. So yeah, big tree climbing, it's like a meditation. It's a, it's a, it's a really unusual thing to be able to do it. And what's really astounding is that those trees are everywhere. And some of them that are interesting to climb might not be that big. But nobody's ever gone there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to talk to you guys again. And, uh, and let's, let's, let's keep the tree spirits going. Then uh, I, think, I think we've got to a point where we can uh, wrap up with some final thoughts. The uh, final thoughts with the caveat of we're having you on again because there's just so many more stories and there's uh, so much more to share a wealth of knowledge and you know we had a few questions that we wanted to ask you and we've just scratched the surface of those questions because uh it just turns into these side tangents that are just full of well uh full of knowledge and are great so uh my final thought is well i'm going to start with evolution you know because that that's what we're doing we're trying to evolve as people and we're trying to evolve our work practices to create a better industry and really be able to take care of trees and then, you know, there's that, that balance, you know, of the urban forest and what the, the forest forest is and how do you bring some of the techniques of the forest into the urban forest and make it work with the people. Um, and, yeah, I really look forward to, to our next conversation. You know, there's I feel like we're just scratching the surface of uh, knowledge and uh, that we're going to be able to get from you and great stories. So I, I really look forward to that next one. Jamie, what, what's your final thoughts? Um, I'm just going to say, I look forward to talking to you next time. Just kind of reiterate what you said that, uh, there was a lot I wanted to ask you, but we, we didn't quite get there. So I'm really stoked to talk to you again and ask you all those stories about climbing big trees. Yeah. Uh, Scott, what are what are your final thoughts on this conversation? I think my final thoughts are, you know, what is so special about the ability we have now to communicate like this? You know, the pandemic has turned things topsy-turvy, and it's not going to go back to the way it was. And so, although we love to hug each other and see each other, you know, I've been missing the Treehouse Conference and particularly missing the biomass tree climbing gathering that we do up here in the Northwest in, in the Bainbridge Islands. But I think that we can build on this. And particularly, it allows people to communicate
conversation that we might have over beer after a conference, et cetera, and we can share it with so many people. Yeah. Uh, so I am, I, you know, people want me to do this, do that, write a book, make a video, all this stuff. Uh, and I probably will make some videos. I'm not sure if I can write a book. I'm not a, I'm a disciplined guy, but in a funny way. So I think what I, what I would leave you with is, uh, this is about connections. What you guys have stood up and done about making connections, it's more about people than trees. And I'll leave you that. You know, Andrew, the three of us were tree manipulators. Yeah. I am all yeah. over manipulating trees. However, I firmly believe that all tree pruning is for people, not for trees. The trees prune themselves. They've done it just fine. That tree that I got to climb with Professor Silla, with Steve and his gang, the Bull Creek Giant, that tree is, uh, Bob Van Pelt thinks it's about 1,800 years old. Nobody has ever pruned that tree. Mm-hmm. That thing is going strong. Philip and I stood at the top of that tree with our heads above the tallest branches in view of Hyperion, the tallest tree we know about. And it makes you think, you know? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. I want to do this again, guys. Totally. That's my final thought. It was a long one, but I got it out. That's all right. No, I, I like it. Um, with that, I'll say stay safe and roll out the jib and full speed ahead. <laughs> Touch trees, baby. Touch trees. <laughs> nice talking to you, Scott. Bye, guys.